At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. It always seems like it's um, it's fitting when we're talking about the Canadian railroads because that's, um, that boxcar um, makes that locomotive we use in our, our graphic uh, looks like um, be either Canadian National or Canadian Pacific. Um, I'm Mike Bowden, still head of Intermodal Solutions here, um, joined by Joanna Mars, as always, a uh, editorial writer who follows the railroad industry. Uh, Joanna, how are you? You've written a lot of articles uh, just so far this month, I think five or six or seven articles. Yeah, yeah, which is funny because I was also on vacation last week. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know how that happened. Um, yeah, so it's it's been it's been going pretty well. I was thinking, you know, you were talking about um, sort of the the you know, how we're going to be talking about Canada. And I was thinking, like, how can we or how can I uh, spruce up the uh, anything I say with an A at the end or like an oat in a boat? But um, I don't know. <laughs> I have to remember to say A at the end, which is kind of tricky. So we'll see. A. Yeah, it is um, kind of a, an odd situation. I mean, it was um, so basically uh, for those who haven't been following this, there's a port worker strike at in, in British Columbia. So you have the, the biggest port in Canada, which is Port of Vancouver. It's really sort of the, the main port that at least the Canadian portion of the uh, CPKC uses. It was really sort of their their main port of entry um you know before the, the the merger and then it's also the biggest that canadian national uses canadian national also uses uh, some other ports in eastern canada and, and uses ports of prince rupert they're exclusive on but um you know really it's it's kind of the main gateway or at least the biggest gateway in and out of canada for moving um you know there's other big bulk commodities outbound you know moving a lot of containers you know inbound and um you know, now the work stoppage is in the sixth day is clearly it's going to go through some of the, um, the the facts of the situation here. I mean, more than ninety nine percent of the union workers voted just to strike in in, in June. Discussions currently paused. Um, the uh, group that's argu- uh, arguing in favor of the um, and I guess on, on behalf of the the terminal operators, they wanted the the mediation arbitration sort of take place right away. ILWU in Canada rejected that, um, and. Uh, you sort of a situation that's kind of at a standstill right now. And I just wanted to show a couple of uh, sonar charts in here that are kind of interesting. We've had some questions from sonar customers of, is any of this showing up in the sonar data? Um, would say would say so if we want to bring some of these up. Uh, so we have, uh, first, this is the ocean booking volume index. So this is based on uh, ocean bookings that are submitted to the ocean carrier. And what I'm looking at here is just the port of Seattle. Sort of one of the questions we got from a sonar customer was, are you seeing any diversions to other ports uh, from exporters that are concerned about um, just not getting, being able to get their stuff out of the port of Vancouver? And it does appear that you see that big bump right at the end of June into July, that big surge in volume um, you know, for, for, for outbound shipments out of the port of Seattle. 
so that was interesting. And those would be, um, you know, containers. Um, this is from a, a product that we call uh, Container uh, Atlas and, and Sonar. And then we have another one that shows um, outbound of Vancouver, uh, another Sonar chart that shows a, a dip uh, right at the end of last month into this month. See, these are outbound booking, uh, volume booking index uh, out of Vancouver. And so at least the, the shippers are concerned that it's not something that's going to be resolved right away. Um, you know, you do wonder if this was happening in um, uh, Los Angeles, if they would just, uh, the president would order everyone back to act to work, but um, kind of an interesting uh, situation there and, and one that's potentially disruptive. Um, you know, Joanna, what have uh, you read about uh, the situation? Yeah, yeah. So, if, so I'm kind of, I've, you know, I've, I've asked, um, you know, CPKC and CN and, you know, we'll be writing a story about it um, soon about, you know, like how how the uh, work stoppages, at, you know, on, on the Canadian West Coast is, is affecting their operations. Um, I've seen some other um, news reports um, from uh, each uh, rail carrier saying, um, you know, obviously there's going to be, you know, anytime that there is um, a work stoppage or 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 a disruption um, on one um, end of supply chain, it, you know, it it is it's a supply chain, so it goes along. Uh, it, it affects other actors as well. Um, it's uh, there was a report. I think it was in CBC um, saying that uh, Canadian Pacific or CP, CPKC um, uh, has issued um, uh, you know sort of temporary embargoes and keep network fluidity. I'm still trying to confirm that right now. Um, and then of course you also have CN uh, quoted in the Financial Post um, saying that you know anytime you have these kinds of disruptions, it, it obviously, um, it, you know, it takes weeks or, or months to, um, to, to bring things completely back to normal. Um, and you can see that even, even though, um, you know, this is a work stoppage occurring at the ports. I mean, you can just even see like with, with, uh, strikes that have happened, um, for a, a day or a week, um, you know, on, on CN's lines or CPKC's lines historically, um, you know, it takes several weeks to, um, to, to get everything back uh, to normal. And so, you know, to your point is it is interesting to, um, it'll be interesting to see like how, you know, how much diversion um, occurs, you know, uh, to the other uh, sort of the U.S. West Coast ports. And, um, uh, you know, of course, right now, um, you know, the, uh, the the activity at the ports hasn't been as as active as you know it was perhaps maybe uh, two years ago or year and a half ago but but yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see like you know if 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 um you know L A or Long Beach or, or whatever um, will be seeing um some kind of uh, uptick. Yeah, the time it takes to recover from disruptive events is one thing that has always sort of struck me about the rail industry because you have so many different pieces of equipment, different crews that are in the wrong places that it does take, you know, a lot of times a number of weeks. It's kind of like when you have the polar vortex in Chicago, it took a long time to, to sort of fully recover uh, for, for, from those type of things. Um, and it's also worth pointing out, I mean, for, for any shippers that um, rely on, um, you know, the just just imports coming from Canada. I mean, you look at sort of those two ports and, you know, about 15% of the trade that comes through the port of Vancouver is for the U.S. Uh, consumption. But then you look at Prince Rupert and, and something like two thirds of that import volume, it's for U.S. consumption. It's not strictly a Canada problem. Um, it really um, sort of has an impact on, on the U.S. As, as well. 
And then sort of adding to that, we have um, UPS threatening a strike at the end of this month. And UPS has long been the largest intermodal uh, customer, the largest intermodal you know, shipper, um, certainly largest intermodal customer if you don't include the domestic truckload-based companies like, like J.B. Hunt and, and, and Hub Group. Um, and, and they use a combination of, of trailer and flat car and container on flat car. I uh, have an intermodal, uh, domestic intermodal containerized, you know, graph sort of shows how it's the volume is going to be kind of flattish in the second quarter from the first quarter, but still down like, you know, 5% year over year. So there's still a lot of, uh, of capacity uh, there in the domestic intermodal uh, space. Um, and it would be something where you've seen weak intermodal volumes all year long. And this would just be one other thing that you know, impairs intermodal volumes, uh, you know, further. And, uh, you know, Mark Solomon has been covering the story, uh, closely for, um, for freight waves and, uh, the, the, the teamsters are talking about this is basically being an inevitable shutdown. And this will be the largest, um, union, largest single company strike, I guess, if you, if you exclude any sort of multi-company agreements. Um, so UPS moves about one out of every four packages every um another interesting set i saw is every intermodal uh, container in union pacific uh that that ups is using could be up to two thousand uh packages uh in it so really sort of a mass a massive um you know disruptive event potentially for um uh intermodal as, as well yeah yeah well it's just kind of uh you know a little bit related to that you know i uh you know my my personal emails i was um i was trying to order I, you know, I got a website, uh, or I got an email um, from uh, a website, kind of you know, selling um, books, and I was going to buy my ten-year-old um, a, a book, and it, it was interesting because it said, you know, you should buy your stuff now in July because in August there might be there might be a strike. So, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting that they they put that in that email. So, you know, <laughs> you can go get your stuff now. Um, yeah, but yeah, get it, get it now. Uh, We'll have a freight boom for the next three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to move on to some of the stories you've you've written about, which there's been a lot of them. Um, I don't think you have time to go through all of them, but let's maybe just go through um, a couple here. I mean, o- Ohio is, is now pressing uh, President Biden uh, for to call this a di- the, basically a dis- disaster area in, in, in East Palestine. Seems maybe a little late for that. So what is um, State of Ohio asking for and, and how would that help? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think the um, Ohio is actually given an, an earlier deadline to, um, you know, for to ask for disaster relief. Um, but for some reason, they had pushed that back and asked for an extension. Um, and so, um, you know, so you so you get this uh, this letter that um, Ohio Governor uh, Mike DeWine sent to um, President Joe Biden the other day asking um Asking, I, I think for you know for 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 help for um to to help uh uh you know it, it, it kind of again kind of boils down to cost. I mean because you know initially you know immediately following after you know initially uh, after the um the 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 derailment of February third um of the Norfolk Southern drain um you had all these uh, questions about remediation costs and, and who's going to pay for those. And of course, you know, Norfolk Southern has pledged, um, to, to, uh, to help pay for them. Um, and I believe I am correct. Um, excuse me if I, if I'm not remembering this correctly, but I, I think also the environmental protection agency, um, 
or at least one of the federal agencies had also, um, you know, uh, wanted to ensure that that NS was going to um, pay for re- remediation costs. So you have that aspect, but then the um, the letter that um, Governor DeWine sent to to uh, Biden was, well, what happens, you know, uh, years later? <laughs> because you know, no one is, uh, you know, his argument was that uh, DeWine's argument was that you know, no one's. Um, really sure yet you know what what's going to happen several years down the road in terms of like health impacts if if anything um and so i think it's just that kind of uh assurance that you know that um that i that 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 someone who will be around to to keep track of things and sort of help um things uh you know help help pay for cost if if um if there are some sort of long-term uh um uh, implications that are that arise. Um, it was interesting because you know, Dewine said that you know Norfolk Southern is has committed to to the region, but at the same time, you know, who's to say what's going to happen in the future? Um, you know, if if uh, if you know if new management comes in uh, one day eventually and you know, decides to change course, um, in you know, uh, at, at, at a NS um, in terms of you know how to respond. Um, so, so that's what's, uh, yeah, so that's what's going on um, in that. And um, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah, that seems like the tenure of um, the management teams at the, the Class 1 Railroad seems to have shortened in, um, in, in recent years. So it's certainly a possibility there's a different management team that says, well, you know, that wasn't us that, that, that did it essentially. Um, so I think that's interesting that they could potentially get federal assistance on top of the local and, and, and state. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting in that article is you talked about how Norfolk Southern filed a complaint against the rail car owners in a district court. So essentially, this is a this is a lawsuit. Am, am I understanding that right? And then they name uh, some of these big chemical companies in that lawsuit, and they name uh, some of the big rail car leasing companies, GATX, Trinity, and then a handful of others. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this is actually this lawsuit is folded folded into a larger lawsuit. Um, uh, between Ohio and Northern Norfolk Southern, um, uh, o- Ohio had um, filed a suit against um, Norfolk Southern, you know, over the cleanup costs, and so um, this recent action by NS is just, you know, it's it's uh, it's a complaint against um, chemical companies, as you, I think Dow Chemical, um, Oxyvinyl, which is a subsidiary of um, Occident P- Petroleum. Um, as well as um, some of the rail car lessers, you know, as like Trinity and GATX. Um, and, um, you know, NS was arguing that, uh, you know, e- even though um, they're responsible for, for the track and, you know, they ultimately the conditions of, of, of the rail cars, um, uh, it's, it's the rail car owners and the shippers who bear responsibility to ensure that um, that the rail cars are um, functioning that the way they should function, and um, and that you know that they're um, uh, meeting uh, you know current regulations um, uh, in order to to you know, to ship uh, hazardous materials, and so uh, it, it's just because I I think you know you had um, mentioned earlier on like uh, right after the. Um, the accident happened that, you know, it's, it's even though this happened in Norfolk Southern's track, that there are other, um, parties involved in this, you know, like, like, uh, the rail car lessers or 
potentially involved in this, like red car lessers or the shippers. And so um, you, you have that uh, argument starting to come more to the forefront, at least through through this uh, latest action by NS. Um, and of course, you know, uh, Trinity and, and GATX and um, SMBC, I think, or SBF, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing, not pronouncing, you know, using the whatever. But, um, you know, they, they had mentioned that, um, uh, you know, that of course, you know, that they, they, they're challenging um, uh, um, NS, NS's claims. So, uh, again, we'll yeah. also see what happens there. Uh, but uh, it, it is interesting how it's, it's uh, so much attention has focused on NS when there are actually other actors involved. Yeah, that's probably the reason why they're doing it. I mean, I don't know if they're actually getting money out of these companies from doing that. It might get something, something that's just dismissed, but it's just to sort of bring attention on the fact that they're not the only constituent that is involved in moving freight on railroad. There's a lot of other parties involved. And so uh, to me, that's probably just kind of a, a PR move, if I had to guess. Um, and, and, and speaking of accidents, I mean, I just saw a um, news article from another site that said this today's a 10-year anniversary of the Lock Megantic. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's been 10 years, but, um, you know, that was the you know, one of the worst tragedies in the history of the, the railroad industry. But um, you know, I think something like 47 people died. It sort of it basically just demolished that, 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 that town. So um, it's just one more thing, I think, just people will get reminded of that and um, just just adds to the greater focus on, on, on rail safety. Um, but I want to shift from rail safety to, to, to service a little bit. You just put out an article on um, the Reliable Rail Service Act. So senators are um, reintroduced reasonable rail service bill. And so this is really uh, kind of the, the thing is the common carry obligation, the railroads uh, you know, received all this land from the federal government in exchange for promising that they would provide um, what's called the common carrier obligation, which they would provide a reasonable service for those who want to use the railroad. Uh, but uh, the, the reasonable is, what's reasonable has always been kind of a, of a question. I mean, you had an article last, uh, I think it was last week, I talked about it just when I did the, the show on my, on my own, where this Navajo coal group that was trying to move coal on BNSF um, to, for export said they were not getting reasonable service and wanted um, uh, SDB to, to mandate certain service requirements, which which, which they got um, what they what they requested for. But uh, and BNSF said, well, you know, reasonable, what's reasonable in some situations is not reasonable in other situations. If there's other sort of mitigating kind of extenuating circumstances that um, prevent you from hitting delivery windows and, and, and those things. But um you know what's happening with this um, the, the, this rail service bill? What do you think will, will happen there? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean that's another interesting thing to see. You know what will happen um, because I, you know, it it it, it was a, it was a bill that was re- reintroduced by uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, and so um, it was introduced last October, but it didn't really get um, very far. Um, even though um, you have you know rail shippers. Uh, uh, you know, calling for the bill, and then and now you also have, um, you know, the 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 unions calling for the bill as well. So you have this sort of united front, um, <laughs> uh, uh, asking for uh for, for Congress um to um enable the Surface Transportation Board to to look at that de- you know that definition of what is reasonable rail service under the common carrier obligation, um and 
And then you also had um, the former uh, House, the, the chair of the um, House um, uh, DNI Transportation Infrastructure Committee, um, Peter DeFazio, uh, you know, hold a hearing about that as well. You know, I remember he um, had invited um, STB Chairman Marty Oberman to, to speak at one of the hearings and was asking, well, why can't you guys, you know, uh, do more in terms of uh, helping to fix rail service? And then, you know, as Oberman said, well, we're kind of, our hands are kind of tied in terms of like what we can do. <laughs> That's sort of beyond our pay grade. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think what's, what's different um, this time around is that um, even though the rail service issues were a big issue in 2022, it seems, you know, for better or for worse that um, the, the February 2023 derailment of the NS train, um, you know, brought a spotlight on the rail industry um, in a way that it hadn't um, experienced before. I mean, it did experience it to some extent um, with the, with the, uh, you know, the potential work stoppages um, uh, that some of the rail unions were, were um, threatening uh, um, last fall. But, um, but I think, you know, I guess that, you know, those potential work stoppages, you know, plus um, the, the uh, you know, the, the heightened scrutiny that the rail industry um, has received, you know, following, following the February 23 derailment um, has kind of, you um, It'll be interesting to see, like whether that th those events have, you know, sort of pushed, um, pushed Congress to, to, uh, to, uh, I don't say more seriously consider, you know, the the, the safety bill. But, I mean, I mean the safety, yeah, uh, Tammy Baldwin's bill. But but, um, uh, you know, you know whether it will be more momentum uh, for something to happen because I think. Both the rail service um, bill and the rail safety um, bill, and and also the other movement that has been going on. I mean, I think for both of those issues, even though one's operations and one's safety, I think some have argued that the root cause of um, uh, of of both situations is you know precision scheduled railroading, or at least mm -hmm. um, the the railroads um, you know cutting their 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 workforce numbers. Um, uh, you know, prior to the, you know, pandemic and then a, and a lot more during the pandemic. And then, of course, now they're trying to recoup um, the, the, those numbers somewhat. But, uh, but you know, uh, since PSR um, has uh, um, been kind of uh, seen as, as the, as a root cause, um, you know, will, will the rail service get, bill may move for, further um, uh in the Senate or, you know, in committee, I don't know, we'll see. Yeah, definitely something to watch. I mean, it seems like things are, are, are happening there, um, at least uh, just with so much attention on both service and, and, and safety. I've got about two minutes left. Um, maybe we'll just talk a little bit about uh, one of the big suppliers that you wrote about, uh, Greenbrier Companies. They report, they have a little bit of a different fiscal, uh, you know, year. We wrote an article about this. I know earlier they, they had talked about, um, you know, not having enough people. Did, did they say anything about about that improving at all? Ooh. <laughs> um, I, you know, beyond the say, I don't remember um, off the top of my head. I, I think, I don't really want to say the wrong thing. I mean, it, it's, it, if, if it, if it was said, it's probably improving. If it, if it, if it has improved, then, you know, it's not a big issue, but I don't really, um, I don't 
totally remember what they said during it, but I, I think in general, um, you know, the, you know, the, those, those issues of, of hiring and retention, um, ha- have improved and, you know, it's just kind of an ongoing, um, uh, ongoing effort to, to get, um, members and, and, and workforce, uh, you know, sort of manpower, uh, to where it needs to be. Um, but it was interesting that how, um, Greenbrier reiterated, you know, that, uh, you know, even though you have these, 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 you know, market uncertainties that, um, you know, there's still the pent up demand and there's still, uh, demand for, for rail cars, um, uh, because of the, uh, pending retirements that are happening along, you know, various fleets like the box cars and, and whatnot. So, um, there, there didn't seem to be like, you know, uh, a, a big concern that you know, you know that that rail car, car orders are going to fall off a cliff or something. I mean, there might be some adjustments, but it's not you know anything catastrophic, if anything. Yeah, certainly Wall Street like what they had to say. I'm going to bring up a, a stock chart on that quickly. Uh, basically, stock went from thirty two dollars to forty four dollars that day. I think it was the the best performing you know stock. You know that day it's come back a little bit to forty one. But this was one when I I followed this when I was a stock analyst. It was always one that. And got a lot of attention from the hedge funds uh, because you can see when they report earnings like they did at the left part of that chart and in November, how that shot way up. And then um, in, in, in January, went way down, lots of volatility that um, you know, the hedge funds tried to t- take advantage of. But I think what moved the stock in that particular case is they said that they had new rail car, car orders for 4,600 units during the quarter and then another 7,900 units after the quarter. And that's on um, versus deliveries of 6,600 units. So you do have a strong book to bill there um so most of the things are going well like you said strong demand for uh orders they said for everything except intermodal units intermodal rail cars which you would not expect there to be much um demand for given what uh, volumes have done uh so with that i think it's all the time we have um you know, thanks for joining me joanna and thanks everyone uh, for listening <laughs>